that uh, we were able to do we trust by your power um, we ask that each one here already can praise you for the way you worked in their life because they were resting in your son uh, not working to get to heaven but allowing you to work through them and uh, it's such a gracious thing father but when you work through us we do things that you count worthy and uh, you actually reward us for that after using us as a tool and uh, so the great the, the glory goes to you we get to see your grace in action. We get to see your love and mercy extended to us. And uh, we get to get to know you even better. Um, we ask as we've come to your word today, Father, that we would have open eyes, open hearts, open minds, that we might uh, harmonize our minds with your mind. Because your word is the only way for us to know just some of your thoughts. For your thoughts are much higher than ours. All right, today, uh, just by way of introduction, I want to reiterate the importance of positional truth. I hope you're not getting tired of that emphasis that we're putting on, but we will continue to hammer this because I want to focus on it as much as it is misrepresented or under-focused on. Um, number one, um, how many Christians look forward to seeing a loved one that was a believer that has passed away. Okay? Does it, do a lot of Christians look forward to that day? You know? When, when Christ appears in the air, he's going to raise a group of people out from the grave. But it's not all believers who have passed away. It's a select group. It's those who have a position in Christ. Those are the ones who are being raised. Is positional truth important? Only those who God sees to be in Christ at his right hand, who are dead, are being raised at the rapture. Others will be raised at future times. But those who are in Christ will be raised when Christ appears in the air. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. Read in verse 13. First Thessalonians 4.13. Everybody gets four flinches. A message. If you or didn't hear a verse, you can talk up. I started clicking and all of a sudden they were gone. You get four, but I don't keep track. So <laughs> all right. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also who sleep not in, but through Jesus will God bring with him. So this isn't a reference to positional truth in this, path, in this verse. It's talking about the method to how people come to be dead as Christians. You say, oh no, oh no. So-and-so died of cancer. So-and-so died of dementia. So-and-so died of uh, multiple sclerosis. So-and-so died of a car accident. So-and-so died of SIDS. So-and-so died of a heart attack. No. As a believer, you don't die from an ailment. You die because Jesus turned the key. Okay. He has the keys of life and death. 
believers mainly. I can't prove unbelievers. He's still in control, or God is still in control even when the unsaved die. But uh, he has the keys. He has the keys. And it tells you, it's, here it's specifically talking about right. Christians. Right. Okay? Those who sleep through Jesus. Okay? It's not referencing unbelievers, so I, I don't right. have a verse specifically about the unsaved. But God is control of all, in control of all things. So even if it's not specifically turning the key, he's still in control, right? Um, but this is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the agency through which... A believer goes home to be in his presence. So, you know, yeah, there's, you know, the, the, the method that we attribute it to down here is just a channel. That's the, the key, that, that's the, the lock that Christ used to bring you home. All right. For this we say by a word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep. So what this is saying is that we who are alive, this Paul is assuming that the rapture could happen at any moment and that he would be part of that group of believers that never see death. There's going to be a whole generation of believers who do not see physical death. They will be transitioned from a unglorified living body to a glorified living body. There will be a whole generation of believers that do not see death. And it could be, it could have been Paul, but all through the history of church, whoever is living, it was potentially that group. And we find ourselves now, today, in that group. It could be us. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and by a trump of God, and the dead in Christ. The dead in And this is positional truth. Those who are dead in Christ... What does that mean? What are the possibilities that means? That it could be the dead, all those who are dead of all time. It could be those who count themselves to be dead in Christ in regard to the sin nature. That's not it. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about those who are physically dead who have a position in Christ. Their position in Christ does not go away when they physically die. God still sees them alive in Christ. They're merely separated from their mortal body. And they have a temporary body. That's another passage. But they are in Christ positionally still. Complete. Glorified. But they're not, that's not actual yet. Until the rapture. Okay. Pastor, would you, would you share how you see this happening? So, Christ coming back with those who have already died. Uh, those alive being caught up in the, in the clouds. And the dead in Christ, how does it say it? The dead in Christ will rise first. How, when you picture this in your mind's eye, what do you see? Do you see bodies coming up out of graves, particles, I think it's, uh, you have the passages of this, the depth of this, uh, how does it say it over in Revelation? But it's not talking about the rapture, but it is talking about resurrection. 
if you go to Revelation 20, um, the sea gave, verse uh, 20, verse, I think it's verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. So the sea gives up the dead, you know, what part of a human body is still left in the sea, you know? I'm, I'm sure there, there's, there have been those that have been eaten up by animals and, you know, is there some bones left maybe, or have they even possible that they've been completely deteriorated, you know? There's an atom of them somewhere on this earth, right? God's able to do it, basically. You know, that's the bottom line. Whether it's an ash or whether it's a, you know, a bone from a grave, there's some of something that went into the grave is going to come out. But what went in, it's not going to come out the same way it went in. Right? Just like the whole thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Does the seed, does the harvest look like the seed? No, it grows up and it comes out something completely different. Right? We're going to have a body pertaining to the spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 15. It's going to be better adapted to expressing the saved, glorified spirit than it is the saved, glorified soul. We're better adapted now at expressing the soul. So, you know, people often say, what's that future body going to be like? You know, and, I, and it's actually been stated, well, you'll be the best you never was. All right? Will there be some representation of the prior where you'll be recognizable? It would seem so. But there's also a debate, a debate, not debate, I say debate often, put the wrong emphasis. Um, there's a intellectual discussion about what age are you is the ideal where you're at the best you were in this life. It's still gonna be better than that, right? You know, I don't know, is it 18, is it 20, is it 25, is it 30, is it 40? Pretty sure it's 44. <laughs> Moving target every year. It's the year I. It's the you know, um, it's kind of a discussion that is. It's fun to think about, but does it matter? You know, these are part of the things that you can set your mind to. Hey, I'm I'm at the, I'm I'm already glorified at the Father's right hand. This is a worthwhile thing to think about. You know, but does it mean that your conclusions are gonna or that's what it's gonna be? No. We can think about the New Jerusalem and everything there in the third heaven. We don't have a lot about it. It's being built. Those that are dead in Christ are up there. They can witness that. It's going on right now. Now, what we extrapolate about it, is that going to mean that that's what's happening? No. But it's a worthwhile thing for us to be thinking about. Okay. Um, how all the events of the rapture take actually take place? Again, there's some subjectivity there. You know, there's obvious things that Tim or Steve was bringing up at the conference last week. How Christ is going to come from the north because that's where heaven is. And how do you have a spherical? If we all go out, we're all going farther away from Christ, right? People in a circle, if they go up from where they're at, right, they're going away from Christ. So it would seem that. We're in groups of clouds from each area. We're all rising up together to meet him in the air, in the north. Okay. 
but we don't even know for sure that just because he's from the north doesn't mean he's absolutely has to appear from the north could be he comes down from the north and then shows up on the east or the what you know i don't know just you know we don't have a definitive statement on it yeah i don't think we should get um trapped in anything you know making us you know trying to say something beyond what it says but is it a worthwhile to think about? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely worthwhile to think about. We should be thinking about these things. And they could happen any time, any day. But what we can firmly say is, I'll, I'll say this, though, because you don't have it here. It's really cool to read 1 Thessalonians 4 with 1 Corinthians 15. It would appear there's two trumps. There's a trump that I think it changes the the dead in Christ, and then there's a trump to raise us together. Or, uh, there's two trumps. And uh, that can be established if you look between the two passages. Because um, one's called the last trump, I believe. So it means it's the last is in a series. So let's just jump, look over there while we're here. Jump over to 1 Corinthians 15. If you think about Christ as omnipresent, That's true in a sense, but Jesus, in the, when it's talking about Christ, it's talking about a human body too. So yeah. while he is God and he is everywhere, right. he's going he's gonna to visibly, physically appear. And we're going to meet him, his, him and his person in that body. So when we see him, we'll be like him. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we read, let's read from verse... Uh, 50, it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay. That's specifically the mystery. It's not the rapture, per se. The mystery is that not all will sleep, but all will be changed. Okay. In a moment, in the twinkling of your eye, by the last trumpet. For a trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And it goes on down. So by, the, by that phrase of the last trumpet, in the moment, in a twinkling eye, by the last trumpet, for a trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, and we shall all be changed. So I would take that as ellipsis there, going together with the last trumpet. So there's a, at the last, for a trumpet will trumpet, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And, I would, there's ellipsis thereof, and the last trumpet. Okay? And we shall all be changed. Get it? We shall not precede those who are asleep. They, the trumpet will sound and they'll be raised, and another trumpet, and we'll all be changed. Get it? Um, but who is it? Those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ. It's not Daniel. It's not David. It's not pre-Old Testament saints like Abraham. It's not Job. It's not Adam and Eve. It's not Noah. 
It's those who are in Christ. And we can show you, Daniel will be raised, as Steve mentioned last week, when? At the beginning of the millennium. And specifically, so many days after Christ's return to the earth, not in the air. Yeah. How are you going to explain this, right? If they're all raised when Christ comes in the air, there's nobody to raise them, right? Turn to Ephesians 2. There's another little, this is just introductory. Turn to Ephesians 2. you don't believe in positional truth or think it's important, you're missing out on a very big promise about who will be the object of a supernatural education. Okay? We're going to be the recipients of a education about who God is out into the future. What is your future? Learning about God. In a different way that I can learn about God today. In Ephesians 2 it says in verse 7. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. By his kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. The ones who are in Christ Jesus today. Are the ones that he is going to direct this education to. In the future. Specifically us. We won't have a position in Christ in the future. We have a position in Christ today. But we won't have one. After the rapture, there's no more position in Christ. But we will be, the ones that have the position in Christ today are going to be the ones that are get this special education about the grace and kindness of God. Okay? Let that marinate. Let that marinate. Let your mind roll around on that. So, we've been emphasizing this. The Christian has a position in Christ. It's not fancy language. It's not because they're trying to make scriptures more interesting reading. It's not because they're tired of saying Christian. In fact, the writers never get tired of saying Christian. They only say it once. It might be twice in the Bible. I think it's once in Acts chapter 13 or 11. That's not the way we're identified. But in Christ's truth, the fact that we have a position at the Father's right hand at the place of honor and privilege, where we're elevated, we're taken out of Adam, a place of condemnation, and we're placed into Christ, a place of blessing, of privilege and honor. We, every Christian has that at the moment they get saved. The Holy Spirit, when you believe the gospel that Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day, when you believe that for salvation, when you believe that personally, the Holy Spirit takes you out of that position in Adam and places you into Christ at the Father's right hand. And God thinks of you that way. You're no longer condemned. You're a saint, which means you're set apart. You're marked off for a special purpose unto God. That's what a saint is. That's what being holy is. Okay. We've been seeing this, especially in the book of Ephesians. We have a position in Christ. We saw in Ephesians 1.6 that 
we are accepted in the beloved. The idea of being accepted, isn't that a wonderful idea? How many children that you could say, you know, whether their parents express it or not, how often are kids, even adult children, still trying to get the acceptance of their parents? Right? It's a major motivating factor in a lot of children's lives. Maybe parents are stingy on showing their, their acceptance of their children. Maybe they are very judgmental. Maybe they do accept them, but the kid doesn't feel like they're accepted. There's all kinds of things, all kinds of dynamics. This idea of accepted is actually the word for grace. We're graced in the beloved. Now, the reason we're graced is because of that position. We are in the beloved. What does it mean to be in the beloved? The beloved, who is the beloved? It's Jesus Christ. The Father loves the Son. How did the Father love the Son? Does anybody know? He gave him a commandment to die. That's what the book of John, the gospel of John tells us. He gave him a commandment to die. It also goes back to the eternal covenant in Hebrews 13, where the Father promised the Son that if he would do so, he would be, if he would become a sacrificial lamb, that he would give him sheep that would emulate his character. That's in Hebrews 13. And that was a show of love from the Father to the Son. The Father loves the Son. He rose him on high. The Father rose Christ from the grave after he died a self-sacrificial death for our sins as he was agreed to in the decree. He fulfilled it. And he said, sit at my right hand. And he is beloved after having died for the sins of the world, after having provided for all unrighteousness that's ever existed. The father loves the son. Okay, you think, well, he can't accept me because I'm sinner. Nobody knows how bad I am. I'm despicable. Man is evil and the heart is deceitfully wicked, as Jeremiah says. You're saying, if you're saying that, in spite of what God says about you being graced in the beloved, you're saying your sin, while as bad as it is, I'm not making light of it, your sin isn't to the same degree of all humanity. Do you get it? Christ, when he died for he became sin. And that was the totality. Okay? You're not the totality of sin. You are, you are a sinner, but you're just one person. Christ died in the beloved and he is the direction of that grace God we are graced because we're in him what is that correct when you realize that 
Is it correct, somebody that has too big of an ego? You should, if you really internalize what that's saying. Does it, does it correct somebody that, that maybe has uh, too little of an ego? Yeah, because you say, I am in Christ. I have Christ esteem. The fact that I don't feel so great about myself isn't so important. The fact is that God says I'm in somebody because I'm in Christ. Right? Does it affect your conduct, hopefully, in the sense that you stop working, working, working to gain acceptance. There's, there's people that do that to try to get saved, and there's people that try to do that to keep themselves saved, and there's other people that do it just because they feel unworthy. Is that why we ought to be doing things? No. We can't pay God back. We can't prove ourselves worthy be out of appreciation and understanding God's grace. Right? It's not out of shame and grief and, and uh, any of those motivations that are very powerful motivators. We're not just worried about the outcome. We're worried about the process. One three, blessed is the God and even Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, in Christ. Again, I don't get tired of this verse. Maybe you are. I hope you're not. God speaks well of us in Christ. He's not just spoken one things, but He said all spiritual blessings. He's not holding anything back. Sometimes in this life, you, you don't want to over-compliment somebody, right? Because then they start to get a big head. They start to misattribute the cause of why you are complimenting them. Or they want more from you. We deserve more from you because you're complimenting me, right? So often parent might withhold compliments from their child when they might be it might be good for them to hear it hey you're good at this you're good at that i'm proud of you you know or you might instead of saying five things that are all true that are good compliments you might only say one and then when their performance is lacking a little bit you hey i want to tell you something else i'm proud of you about and you kind of Dole the compliments out slowly, right? Trying to get the most bang for your buck. God is not that way. He says all spiritual blessings about us in the heavenlies. It's not like some kind of rewards program where you're like, when you hit this tier, you're bronze level. And once you've done this, we raise you to silver. And when you've done this, you're gold! You get it all. Now you're fully vested. <laughs> no. All spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And that's true 
of the five-year-old believer that truly believes in the gospel. It's true of the 13-year-old that truly believes the gospel. The 30, the 40, the 50. The deathbed person that, that gets saved on their deathbed. That doesn't do anything. That's true of them. Every single believer. Pretty awesome. And uh, some people, they hear that. If you're out there and you're like, Oh, I don't like that because... No, my whole reason for living as a Christian just went away. I like being able to show myself as more righteous than other people. I like all the uh, acclaim and the words of praise I get for doing X, Y, and Z. Then it tells you you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And you need to adjust your thinking. We're not looking just for you to be a busy Christian doing lots of good works. Being a good member of the community. We all like those are all good things. But at the Bema seat, judgment of Christ, will there be anything left when the fire hits your works? Okay. Will there be anything be left? Okay. Is there anything that's worthy of praise? Is there anything worthy of a reward? Christ will determine that. Not me, not Tim, not any other pastor. Christ is the one. It's not you being judged. It's your works. And I'm sorry to say, there's going to be a lot of burnable material. Mine and other, everybody's. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. Because when Christ presents us, the church, to the Father, we will be holy and without spot, unblameable. All spiritual good words. That's going to protect us if we set our minds to that. It's going to protect us. It's going to protect us from a lot of bad reasons of doing things. Getting off. Honestly, it protects you from a lot of legalistic standards. Okay. If you're focused on the fact that God was gracious towards you, and already has accepted you, already gave you all spiritual blessings, you're not going to be trying to work to earn those things. You have to replace that motivation for work with something else. I'll tell you what's one of the biggest dangers of taking in grace. I want to say that kind of like it's how we might say it, but I don't know that that's completely accurate. It's, I don't think it's ever a bad thing to teach about grace. But often, Christians do take grace for granted. Well, why don't our women in our church uh, look as zealous as those Jehovah's Witnesses or those Mormons that are always busy, 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 busy for, for God? Okay. Little G, right? Because we're not fearful of our lives. And fear is a very strong motivator. Fear is a very strong motivator. I don't want Christians to be zealous like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're zealous like the Mormons. We ought not to compare ourselves to them. Because the reality is, the works that God has for the church are specific to the individual. They're specific to the individual. So you can't compare, that's like comparing apples and oranges. You know, who takes uh, uh, horses and, and tries to compare them to a donkey? Yeah, you can do that, 
but you don't take, they're not in the same, they're not even in, in the same contest, right? You don't take a donkey and put it out there on the race course with a bunch of thoroughbreds. It's not even a contest. Okay? You can compare them, but they're uncomparable. It's apples and oranges, horses and donkeys. We ought not to compare ourselves to others, not other Christians, not the unsaved. The question is, it's that back to that competitive thing. You can only compete against yourself. Am I living out who I am in Christ more today than I did yesterday? Okay. Or am I just living out who I am in Christ this moment? That's probably the best statement. Verse 4 of Ephesians. According as he hath chosen us in him before the universe, before the foundation of the universe, that we will be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay. So we're chosen in him. God chose that. That's what he chose. He didn't choose us to be in Christ. He chose us in him. He saw us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he chose, I want that. Okay? I want that. I want believers in Christ. And I'm going to bring it to fruition that they will be holy and without blame before me. Before me. It's a position right now, but at the rapture, when after the Bama Seat Judgment, we're going to be presented to the Father. And this will become an actuality. How awesome is that? What he planned in eternity past, he is bringing about in actuality in time. Look in verse 7. We already saw in verse 6 that we're graced in the beloved in seven in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace so now we find out that grace has riches okay we, his grace has riches now these are spiritual riches they're not physical riches they go along with the spiritual good words that he's already said about us but saying something is different than it being a resource so when it says it's riches, it tells us it's a resource. It's something that you can use. Okay? Now, how many of you have tools that, that uh, you never can't find and you never use? <laughs> My wife is... If you can't see, she's pointing at me. I, this is the kettle calling the blood, you know, whatever, you know the same. Um, we've lived here almost seven or eight years now, going on seven, I think. We still haven't cleaned our garage from when we moved here. Okay. I included my wife in that, and that was kind of, a, that was kind of evil of me. I haven't cleaned my garage 
since we moved back. I got boxes and boxes of tools that I'd love to get out and have accessible. Um, I often uh, start a project at the house, don't have the tool I need, and I do the walk of shame. I, rather than go to my garage, I walk over to my dad's house, and uh, he graciously lets me use his tools as much as I want, okay? He's enabling me. He's enabling my, lax, my, my laziness. Um, see how I blamed that on him? See how I did that? Um, hopefully, the grace of God is something that you're using. Right? Hopefully it's not a tool that you got out in the garage hidden under a bunch of other garbage that you threw in there from when somebody was coming over and you're trying to clean up the house as amongst the mountain of stuff that you need to throw away. Right? Does that place an importance on what you think about a tool? How well, how much access you keep to it? And how often you use it. I notice that at our house, I can always get to the silverware. <laughs> Does that tell you how important eating is? Okay. Your toothbrush. Do you have access to your toothbrush? Yep, you have access to your toothbrush. Uh, your bed. Do you keep access to your bed? Yeah, you want to get dressed, right? It's a tool for sleeping. Um, your car. Do you get access to your car? There's things that we consider a necessity. We consider it extremely important. And we keep access to it at all times. That's what grace is to us. Get it out. Think on it. We are grace in the blood. And there are resources there for us to use on a daily basis. That's what our positioning in Christ is. Okay. And what is it here? We have redemption through his blood. We have redemption. Okay. We're going to sing a song on the main message today. Leading into the main message. Uh, we have a redeemer. Great song. Good words. We have a redeemer because he's redeemed us. We're completely set free. We're completely set free. That is a positional statement because right now in this body, I'm not completely set free. I still have a sin nature and there are times where I become a slave to that sin nature. You are a slave to whom you obey, Romans 6. Whether of sin unto death or whether unto the spirit, right? Unto life and peace. If I obey the sin nature, I'm showing I'm a slave to it. It's my master. If I obey the Lord Jesus Christ, and I do what the Holy Spirit leads me to do through empowerment, then I'm a slave to God. How do you think I live out a freedom down here on this earth? I have to see who I am in Christ, and the fact that he sees me to be already set free. That's positional. I have to get my mind in harmony with God's mind about who he says I am. I have to break that power of that sin master, the sin nature, that says it has power over me and it has the right to tell me what to do. And I have to say, no, 
I have a new slave master, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's broken the power of the sin nature. And I can do what God wants me to do. I can do that because I'm redeemed in Christ. Grace, my position, is not just words, fancy words. It's resources that I can use. That's what it is. And that's how it becomes resources that you can use. You set your mind to it, and now it's your access to empowerment. Access to do the things that you want to do. Access to complete a job. Access to be effective. Right? Access to affect change. Right? And also in this verse you have forgiveness. Through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses been sent away not just yours personally but all the way back to Adam's trespass the, the trespass that caused it all in Christ see when, when, when Adam chose to disobey God he became a sinner okay he became corrupt when he just by choosing it by choosing that in his mind it ensured that he would do it. He had the nature to do it at that point. That was the cause of the sin. Okay, the choice resulted in the action. If you get rid of that initial choice, as if it never happened, what does it happen to all the unrighteousness that comes from it? How many of you guys like uh, time travel shows? Right? It's a it's a it's an exercise in illogicalness and being a you know right? How many of you um, have watched one and you know you're watching it with other people and somebody always has to say. Well, that's not logical. If that doesn't happen, then so-and-so doesn't happen. You're right. I don't know the term for it, but, you know, there's a sequence of events, and if the initial cause doesn't happen, then the sequence of events can't happen. Right? And then you wouldn't have a movie, right? It's an exercise in fantasy. It's an exercise in, in imagination, right? We're going back into the past. And God says, that trespass of Adam that God counts you to have done with him, I send it away. I send it away. Now, if I say I send away your trespass, did I send it away? No, I can't do that. But can God do that? God can. Okay. We all know people who say, oh, I forgive you. And next week they're telling you about all about what you did and why they're holding it as a grudge against you. Okay. 
because we don't forget. We don't send it away. We will remember it forever. You did me wrong that time. But when God sends it away, it's effective. And he sends it away for those who are in Christ. I didn't tell him that I was going to be Daisy, so I guess that's what I did right. Very important. We are in Christ. See, so many people, um, have you seen the signs that say Jesus saves? Right? And there's many people that go from that and they act like Jesus saved. The whole, when he died on the cross for the sins of the world, it was effective to all humanity. But we know that's not the case. He provided a salvation that was enough to save every human being. But it's only applied to those who are in Christ. And to those who are in Christ, it becomes an access point to the riches of God's grace. And that's what this is communicating here. on. Look in verse 11. We, we have been made in an inheritance. Okay? We have been made an inheritance. Okay, it's not translated that way in our English. But that is what it's communicating in the Greek. We would say in verse 11, in whom also we have been made an inheritance. What a gracious statement. Not you as a sinner. It's not saying, you filthy sinner, that God, Jesus had to come down here and die for. You're, you sinner, you're an inheritance of Christ. He wanted you, and now he's got you. You're his. You're his problem now. <laughs> All right? That's not what this is communicating. It's saying that he's made us into something to be inherited. Okay? Anybody proud of inheriting somebody's debt? Okay? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a wealthy, great estate inheriting. Okay? Not because of who we are but because of who God is making us to be. And it's that we're in Christ. He we're seen to be all that we're going to be. The best that we never have been. And it's us as a group, the whole church, the bride of Christ. We are promised to Christ. We're his inheritance. actually is such a it really is something to think about it's such it will be such a relationship 
that over in Ephesians 5, it's called the great mystery, right? He's talking about how the church becomes the bride of Christ and that we are going to rule with Christ out into his kingdom and beyond. Okay. The human relationship between a Christian woman and a Christian man is the best illustration of that future relationship that we have today. And it's expressed in Ephesians 5. It can be, often not, but it can be. Too often, the Christian husband says, I'll love my wife if she would just submit, as the Bible tells her to. And the wife says, I'll submit to my husband if he would just love me like the Bible demands him to. Is that a proper picture of Christ in the church? It absolutely is not. They're not contingencies. The husband is to love his wife. End of story. The wife is to submit to her man. End of story. There's no contingencies. If he would just be a better man, I would do. No. That's not why you're submitting. You're not submitting because he's the man or you're not loving because she's the woman. You're loving because of Christ and the church. You so look forward to that relationship of Christ and the church. You're doing it because of that doctrine that you believe. And your commitment to that, your, 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 your anticipation of that. Okay. What glory resounds to God when the Christian woman submits to her man even when maybe he isn't loving? Or the Christian man who's loving his woman. Maybe when she isn't submitting. Or maybe they are submitting, but he's not loving because she's submitting. He's loving because of Christ and the church. Or maybe she's submitting not because he is loving, but because of Christ and the church. Does everybody get what I'm saying here? Is everybody lost? Okay. Again, I'm looking at trying to get nuance. Get you to think about these things in a higher level. We are an inheritance in Christ. And it is a gracious thing. It's not because of who we are down here. It's because of who we are in Christ that we become. Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father are making us into an inheritance. Positionally, we're already made that. One more. We'll look in verse 13. Again, this is review. I know you guys all got this already. Not only review, because Tim covers this over and over and over, but we've been looking at these things as a group. In verse 13, in whom ye also hoped, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after ye believed, ye were sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise. We were sealed into Christ. So security and ownership. Seal points to the one sealing. Because you have a signet ring, and it, you put it on the wax, and it shows 
I, the one sealing this. This letter has authority because it comes from me, and this seal shows that it comes from me, but it ensures that what's in this message gets to where it's going, right? Untampered. We are sealed in Christ. We are sealed in Christ. Nothing can tamper with us. We will get to the destination under the power of God. Safe and secure. And where are we going? You just look in verse 14. Who, the one who seals the Holy Spirit, is the earnest of our inheritance. So this is a play against us being an inheritance. Not only are we an inheritance, but we have an inheritance. We're sealed to get what we've been promised. Who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. We're not getting there of our own. It's unto his glory. We're not going to get there and say, oh man, you made it. I'm so glad. You're amazing. Okay. No. The glory goes to God who's going to get us there, who sealed us, who planned it all. See that? You can really do a message right through this first chapter, not only about positional truth, but you can do it looking at the Trinity and all three persons of the Godhead involved in it. It's kind of a fun message. I haven't done it. I've noticed it, but I haven't done the message. Fun message. All three persons of Godhead involved in this position in this salvation that we're to be thinking about. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. I thank you for your kind attention. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. It's so empowering to think about what you've done for us. It's so encouraging. It just, you know, sometimes we wake up in the morning and we think, oh my goodness, another day. My body hurts. I got work to do today. All the things that we, we think, good grief. But when we think about what you have done in regard to our salvation, it just really empowers us. It empowers us. We don't know what things you might have laid out for us this day, but you have weighed us. You have opened our eyes, and you have made us fit to do those things that you have planned for us this day. We ask, Father, that we would set our mind on things above, that we'd allow the power of the Holy Spirit to work through us, and that we would be humble implements of your work, and that we would stand back and say, thank you.